This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere Thursday at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. everybody welcome to human monsters and we have a very special guest with us today we have leslie rule and if her surname rings a bell i wonder if you're maybe thinking i wonder if there's any relation to Anne rule the true crime author one of the part of the mount rushmore of true crime authors well leslie is her daughter not that i'm going to let her shadow over leslie's output or persona i don't want her mother to eclipse what she's about because she actually has had a very um enriching and uh prolific literary output uh she has written a true crime book called a tangled web which we're going to discuss we're going to discuss the case today though most of her career has been dedicated to writing uh books about ghosts it's dealt with the paranormal um so and actually, what I was interested in in terms of your biography, I read the Wikipedia page, and just one detail involving your mom before we go into your own thing. It says that she introduced you to a serial killer, and I'm wondering, was it Ted Bundy? It sure was. Yes, when I was 14. Do you wow. want me to tell you how the meeting came about? Please do, yeah. Well, it was June 1972. I was 14 years old. And my two best friends and I went to the Rolling Stones concert at the Seattle Coliseum. And my mom was a volunteer at the Seattle Crisis Clinic. And that was a suicide hotline. And she was volunteering there because her brother had committed suicide and she hadn't been able to help him. So she felt she had to do something to help someone else. And she was paired up with Ted Bundy. He was um, working he was a student and he was working for an hourly wage 
and they worked together two nights a week in this old Victorian house on Capitol Hill in Seattle. And my mom got to know him really well during that time because on nights when the phones didn't ring, they would talk to each other. And she was fond of him. She thought he was a really nice young man. And he actually reminded her of the younger brother she had lost to suicide. And together, she and Ted saved a lot of lives. Um, the way it worked back then in the 1970s, they didn't have caller ID. So if they had a, a suicide in progress on the line, for instance, somebody who had um, overdosed on drugs, uh, whoever took the call would signal to the other person and they would call the police and they would sort of trace on the phone. And it could take an hour. And they, uh, my mom would be on the phone with someone who was uh, passing out and could barely talk and she'd be getting nervous. And all of a sudden the EMTs would pick up the phone and say, we got them, they're fine. So they did, they did quite a few of those rescues and she thought highly of him. So um, on the night my friends and I went to the Rolling Stones concert, we had to take the bus home. We lived in Des Moines, Washington, which was about an hour away on the slow bus ride, but the bus didn't run very frequently. And my mom did not want us to wait two hours out in the dark for the bus to come. So she went and picked us up and brought us back to the crisis clinic where we would be safe with her and Ted Bundy. And I remember Ironic. walking in and um, he got up to greet us. And I thought there was something off. And I can't say that I was afraid, but it struck me as odd at age 14 that he would not meet my eyes when my mom introduced us. He kind of ducked his head and he looked at the floor. And at 14, you're used to, he wasn't that much older. He was a decade older than, than we were my friends and I, and, and like all 14 year old little girls, we were cute and you're used to men of all ages looking at you, but he would not even meet my eyes. And that yeah. struck me as odd. And then um, my friends and I went into the other room and um, played Chinese checkers. And I remember feeling really left out because my friends went on and on about how cute he was. They thought, oh, Ted, oh, he's so cute. And I remember sit, sitting there feeling like there was something wrong with me because I couldn't see what they saw. And I felt really bad about it. I, I got very quiet. And at that age, maybe more, um, maybe most 14 year olds are more confident than I was, but I looked to my friends, to my peers to see how I was supposed to react to things. And I thought, well, there's something wrong with me because my friends both agree that he's cute and they just raved about him, but I didn't see it at all. So that was my uh, encounter with Ted Bundy. Uh, he never gave me a ride, though the movie, The Stranger Beside Me, based on my mom's story with Barbara, Barbara Hershey playing my mom, they had a scene where Ted Bundy gives me a ride. And that movie, uh, was produced what 20 years ago and I still get emails from people saying did Ted Bundy really give you a ride no he didn't my encounter with him was very brief uh, so that was my uh, first meeting of a serial killer uh, but it was not the la my last meeting 
because when I was a, a teenager starting around age 17, I would go with my mom to murder trials to photograph killers for her articles. At that time, she was writing articles for the detective magazines. And so she went to a lot of trials and I'd often go along with her. So I got uh, a sense of what it's like to have a killer really mad at you very early. Because when I walked up to them and put my camera in their face, they weren't always happy. Um, some of them did kind of primp and, and pose, but others just glared at me like they wanted to kill me. So that was kind of a chilling experience. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing about human nature. No matter what reprehensible acts a person has committed, very few truly evil people think they're evil. It's very uncommon, actually. You think that they don't realize they're evil. Because they don't realize it, or, or they... Or maybe they think what they did was justified. Like Adolf yes. Hitler really thought he was doing the right thing, you know. It's hard to get our minds around, but um, I think that's true when it comes to people who do wrong. Often they think if someone else did what they did, it would be wrong. But because they did it, it was okay. And they feel justified in it. So that's a really yeah, good and then, and then actually to segue into a tangled web, we had a person who seemed to have like a hybrid of selfishness and narcissism who basically was so profoundly selfish that they were willing to commit murder, uh, taunt the victim's family members, um, you know, destroy people's lives. And, and, and this woman was really committed to it as well. Um, if you could tell our views, what was the name of the murderer again? Shanna Golier, and this was yeah, she, an Omaha love triangle murder with two yeah, females she, and uh, one man. I don't want to like spoil it for them too much because it it well okay I did, I did blow that aspect of it. It is kind of a well, it's murder pretty common knowledge that that she is the killer. Some people don't know when they pick up the book, but most people do. But yeah, it was just well, it was interesting because the relatives of the victim particularly the mother, she read all these texts that were being sent and she just knew this is because the person sending them claimed to be her daughter and saying, you know, I've gone away, I've moved away and don't contact me. And it just wasn't like her to do that. And not only that, um, Carrie, the victim had perfect grammar, perfect punctuation, and she would never send a text until it was just right where Golier did not. And so all of a sudden, Nancy Rainey, Carrie's mother, was getting these texts that just, they did not sound like Carrie in tone. Um, the punctuation and the spelling was all wrong. And they were also very hostile. And oh, she yeah. and Carrie were very close. And Nancy didn't know what was going on. Part of her thought, well, maybe Carrie is having problems. But when she's continued to stay away, um, Carrie was in her 30s and she had a son who was a teenager and he was staying with um, with Nancy uh, for a couple of days. And it was during that period that Carrie vanished and her son was number one in her life. She would not have abandoned her son. And her mother knew that. And she actually had some issues 
uh, with anxiety and um, she had been diagnosed bipolar, but she never had a serious episode. And I'm not even sure if she was bipolar. Just one doctor um, said that she was, and that was not based on a blood test, but was based on questions he asked her. But when Nancy reported Carrie missing, and she mentioned to police um, that Carrie had been diagnosed as bipolar, they immediately decided that, um, oh, well, she uh, must have flipped out and taken off. We see this all the time. And they didn't take Carrie's disappearance serious at that point. They did not take it seriously. Yeah, police really need a lot more training in when it comes to mental health, don't they? They do. And um, luckily, a wonderful team came in after two years uh, when Nancy thought she would never get answers. Uh, detectives James Doty, Ryan Avis, and uh, Special Deputy Anthony Cava, digital forensic expert, got on the case. And they sensed right away that something was off. Um, it was a banard scenario because Carrie lived in Iowa um, and crossed the bridge it, from Council Bluffs, Iowa, is Omaha, Nebraska. So the states are right next to each other. We just very, very close, but there were different police jurisdictions. So in Iowa, Carrie was reported missing, but in Omaha, Carrie's killer was making it appear as if Carrie was stalking people. Um, the killer was sending, she actually sent 20,000 emails and texts in her victim's name, tormenting emails to people. And a number of people in Omaha were convinced that Carrie was a stalker. Um, the boyfriend, David Krupa, he was the object of Liz Golier's affection. And the reason why um, she uh, killed Carrie was to get rid of uh, her competition. So he believed, Liz tricked him into believing that Carrie was stalking them both. It, he never dreamed that Carrie was actually dead. He, he liked Carrie a lot better than he liked Liz. He'd been dating Liz just a few months when he started seeing Carrie. Uh, from the beginning when he met Liz, he told her, this is not an exclusive relationship. Don't expect me to ever be your boyfriend. We can hang out. Um, that's up to you. He didn't mind her and they had a good sexual relationship, but he knew he could never develop deep feelings for her. And he was very clear about that. But when he met Carrie, there was a spark and Carrie was extremely intelligent and he was really impressed with that. Carrie could sit down and have a conversation about things in the news where Liz couldn't. She just wasn't as bright as Carrie was. And Dave was very intrigued with her and was had been dating Carrie just two weeks when things flipped. Carrie had actually been staying at Dave's house and he got up early one morning. It was mid-November 2012. Dave got up to go to work and Carrie was supposed to go to her job, which was about half a mile away from Dave's apartment. And mid-morning, Dave started getting these weird texts from Carrie. Now, um, one of the reasons that Dave really liked hanging out with Carrie was that she was not possessive and she was on the same page he was. She didn't want to 
She did not want a committed relationship. She wanted to take things slowly. That was perfect for both of them. She had also been in relationships where people had gotten too clingy. So Dave was at work um, at his job as a mechanic when mid-morning he got a text from Carrie's phone and he said, hey, let's move in together. And he thought, that's bizarre because that is completely different attitude than she had the last two weeks. And he wrote back and said, oh, no, we can't do that. And then he immediately got a a hostile text from Carrie's phone. He thought from Carrie saying, uh, swearing at him and saying she never wanted to see him again. And he was stunned. Uh, And he told his friends at work and they said, oh, I went through something similar. And he started to think, well, I guess I only knew her two weeks. I guess I, I didn't know her too well. I guess I dodged a bullet. And he dismissed it. And he actually uh, very soon came to de- detest Carrie because he believed that she was stalking him. The stalker did horrible things. Um, she put rocks through his windows. She spied on him constantly. She said, threatening emails and texts to everyone in Dave's life. Uh, she painted, uh, she vandalized the windows where Dave worked um, at the auto repair shop. She painted the windows to say, Dave beats woman. Dave believed that it was Carrie doing these things. And when he did finally learn the truth years later, he had terrible guilt that he thought these horrible things about Carrie because he realized she was the wonderful person he believed she was when he first met her. Um, It was quite an eye-opener. It was quite an eye-opener when Dave finally realized that it was Liz who had been stalking him all along. Yeah, it just goes to show if you're going to, to start treating people that way, launch that kind of campaign, you should at least learn more about the person that you're pretending to be because obviously Liz didn't understand empathy. She didn't understand how these people would react if they suddenly lost Carrie and didn't understand her behavior at all. I mean, got away with it for a long time. And if it wasn't for this group of brilliant detectives who came on the scene to this day, Liz still could have been on the loose. She's in prison for life now. Yeah. There wasn't a lot of social media at the time, right? Or was Facebook well, existing? There was because this was actually 2012 and Liz used um, social media to stop her victim. She stopped Carrie on Facebook and uh, Carrie, um, Carrie was really careful with her passwords. And though Liz had Carrie's computer and her phone um, on the day that Carrie disappeared, Liz could not get into Carrie's Facebook page because Carrie had been very, very careful. And Liz soon got rid of both the phone and the computer. um, And she ended up having to make a clone Facebook page of Carrie's. So Liz impersonated Carrie on Facebook. She took the pictures off Carrie's real Facebook page and created this page pretending to be Carrie. And this freaked out Carrie's family, Carrie's mother and her son, when they saw this Facebook page 
that was allegedly made by Carrie, uh, they sense right away it couldn't possibly be her, uh, especially when she posted a photograph of what was supposed to be her hand with an engagement ring on it and said, I'm engaged to David Krupa. And her mother knew that was not her hand. It was extremely disturbing, extremely alarming for the family and greatly frustrating because they could not, in the beginning, for over two years, they could not get law enforcement to realize that something was very, very wrong. And uh, I read the book back in December, so I, I don't remember this element very well. Was Dave Krupa ever investigated as a possible well, when, um, suspect? There was, when Carrie went missing, uh, her mother reported her to the um, Iowa police that Carrie was a missing person. But over in Omaha, um, both Dave and Liz were reporting to police that Carrie was stalking them because they believed she was. And when detectives were trying to look into um, what became of Carrie, they went to, to Dave's work at the auto shop where he worked. And he had a moment where he felt like they were looking at him like they were suspicious of him, but he got out his phone and said, oh no, she's stalking me. And he showed the detectives the threatening text. And they immediately said, oh, well, yeah, he, she's stalking you. And yeah, we see what the problem is. And so never again um, did anybody suspect Dave of doing anything. Um, they, the police early on, the first group of investigators did not question. They believed um, the they believed the scenario that Liz had created. They believed that Carrie was a stalker. They believed that Carrie was putting rocks through people's windows and threatening to kill them and doing all kinds of odd things. There were completely would completely went against her nature because she was a very kind-hearted person, really intelligent woman, never mean to anybody, kind to everybody. But the detectives were not aware of this. They were not looking beyond the first layer. In a way, yeah. you can't really blame them because Liz worked full-time creating this charade. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. No matter how far you run from them, childhood tragedies have a way of catching back up with you. So is true of elite scuba diver Veronica West, 
was about to encounter something unexplainable at the bottom of the ocean, something that will draw her back to her home on Sinclair Island, Maine. There, she'll lead a dangerous rescue mission to the bottom of the Bay of Fundy, home of the world's largest tides, and something horrific down in the depths. Listen to Narcosis, the latest horror fiction show on Realm's premier horror channel, Undertow. Narcosis is available now. Search for Undertow or Narcosis wherever podcasts are served. Oh, yeah. Texts and emails, and she got Dave to back her up because she convinced Dave that Carrie was stalking them. And one of the ways Liz did that was she'd be hanging out at Dave's apartment and they would be watching TV. And all of a sudden, they would both get alert an alert on their phones and they would look and it would be a threat from Carrie. Dave didn't realize there was an app that allowed you to time a note to set it hours earlier so it would come at a particular time. And because mm-hmm. I had asked him when we sat down together, I said, what was it that made you believe that it was Carrie stalking you? And he said that was the thing that really got him. It just didn't occur to him that there was a way for someone to send the, the text early. So if he's sitting right next uh, to Liz watching the TV and they both get a threatening text, it was pretty convincing. Yeah, and I, I recall that um, when suspicions began to arise around Liz, a lot of it had to do with some of her other ruthless behavior. Like she moved in with Dave at one point, right? And Liz? Didn't she, or she moved in well, with she someone? Moved in with that. She, she moved, she had another boyfriend. Um, I called him Garrett in the book, but oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> she, Liz, gave the impression to Dave that he was the only one she was seeing. And he was very clear that he was dating multiple women. But Liz wanted Dave to believe that she was loyal only to him. In reality, she was dating also. She was somewhat promiscuous. So on Benoist to Dave, Liz was living with her boyfriend. Uh, I gave him a pseudonym in the book, uh, Garrett. So she really kind of uh, forced herself on him in terms of moving into his place and bringing all her stuff and spending. Didn't she even kind of put him in debt at some point? Well, Garrett, he's a really, really nice guy. And I wouldn't say he went into debt because he made a pretty good living, but he bent over backwards to help Liz and she supposedly had a house cleaning business called Liz's housekeeping. Um, she had two children, but Garrett thought, boy, she must work really, really hard and not get paid very much because she was always broke. In reality, I don't think she worked often at all. Yeah. She had some fraudulent activities, right? Well, she, yeah, she uh, she did a number of things over the years. Like I I, th- I don't know if I remember correctly. Wasn't there something involving credit, like running up credit bills or something like that? Or, or? Uh, I well, she did go to the bank and she took out a boy- money out of a boyfriend's account, and the the bank showed him he said i didn't take this money out this was a different boyfriend 
and the bank showed him the footage, the video footage. And when he confronted Liz with that, she said, nope, nope, wasn't me, wasn't me. She would never ever admit to doing anything wrong, even when the evidence was overwhelming. And with Garrett, um, he ended up paying for her car insurance, helping her buy a car. And once she got a ticket, I believe she ran a red light and there was video footage of that because they had the camera on the side of the road and uh, Garrett got an, an ticket emailed to him and because the car was in his name. And when he told Liz, she said, nope, wasn't me, nope. And he showed her the footage and you couldn't really see who was driving it, the car, but he knew she was driving it that day and the car was in the area where she was. So again, she would not admit to doing anything wrong, but usually with her boyfriends, it just wasn't worth it to them to fight about it. There was no point because she wasn't going to admit to it. She didn't have any money, so they would just let it go. But she took advantage of people however she could. Um, she, she was not a very nice person, or she is not, because I should say, because she's still alive. She did not get the death penalty. Um, she's in prison and will be for the rest of her life. She, uh, did, you, did, did you try to get an interview with her in the prison? or? Well, early on, when I started working on the book, I sent Liz a letter and I told her that I was writing a book and asked if she wanted to talk to me. And she declined in reply letters, very, very polite, thanking me profusely and said, I wouldn't be good for me to have a book out there right now because I'm trying to prove my innocence. And at this point, she'd already been convicted. And some time went by. I wrote the book. It was on the way to press. And all of a sudden, she changed her mind, and I got a letter from her. And it was a six-page letter written in green ink, and I actually put excerpts of it in my update. In my um, When the book first came out, it was hardback, and then a year later, it came out in paperback. So we had an update chapter, and if anything, that letter made her look more guilty than ever. Oh, really? Like, she gave uh, me all you... the reasons why she couldn't possibly be guilty. Um, when she wrote that letter, she had no idea how well I knew her case and how well I actually knew her. I knew where she came from when she didn't. Um, I found her biological family. I found that her name was changed. Uh, her She was born Shanna Kay, and she thought she was Shanna Elizabeth. Um, she'd been adopted. She she had a tragic start to her life. Uh, I think that's I think it's quite possible that she would have grown up to be an okay human being, if not what she went through. I think it was a combination of um, nurture versus uh, nurture and nature that created the monster that she is. But when she was um, born, her her parents both absolutely adored her, but her father beat her mother every single day of her life. And so even if even if Shanna wasn't her name, full name is Shanna Elizabeth Golier. So her uh, she's referred to sometimes as Liz and sometimes as Shanna. 
So even if she was not aware or could not, even if Liz could not see her father beating her mother, she could hear it. And so imagine your brain is just developing and you're exposed to this every single day of your life. And her mother was a very kind-hearted, wonderful person. And she lost custody of Shanna and the, her little brother because of her abusive boyfriend, because the state took, took the children away. And Dee, that was, that was um, Shanna's mother, somehow mustered the strength to get that guy to move out of the apartment. He agreed to do that so she could get the children back. And they had been away for, from her for some months. She was devastated, but she'd been able to see them once or twice a week and supervise visits. Finally, finally, the state said she could get the kids back. And so to prepare for the children to uh, return home, she got their rooms already and she wanted the bedding to be fresh and clean. So she walked to the laundromat. It was a few blocks from the house. And it was a beautiful sunny day in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And Dee left the laundromat, walking along the sidewalk. And a kid who was not supposed to be driving because he had seizures was driving, lost control of the car, and Dee was killed instantly. God. So Shanna lost her family and her mother had been telling her, you're going to come home. And so on some level, this little girl who was almost three years old at this time must have felt profound rejection and betrayal. And I kind of think that the reason that her anger is so focused on females. It's females uh, that she stalks. Any female who even said hi to, to Dave Koopa on Facebook would become a target of her wrath. I think it's very possible that without her even realizing it, this anger she has for these females actually comes from a deep-rooted feeling of betrayal by her mother. Which of course her mother betray her, but she wouldn't understand that. And you mentioned jealousy earlier. Carrie was not only a mother, but from all accounts that I can tell, a really good mother as well. Right, right. So yeah, that must have been part of it too. And she must have had an attachment disorder from all I think so. And you know, I I'm not saying I'm not excusing what she did. I'm just it's good for us to look at these scenarios and analyze them. So if there is a way to prevent a child who has these kinds of tendencies from growing up and committing these kinds of crimes, we should do it. And I think that the state of Michigan messed up in the way they went about things. Yeah, totally. And uh, see, see, there's a reason why I'm glad that I can't drive because of my seizure disorder. What yeah. if I end up causing someone to become a, a heartless killer someday too? Right, right. right. Yeah. Tragedy. But that kid didn't get in trouble. Um, apparently, the story was this is what uh, the the sisters of D told me. They said that he 
was well connected. The family was well connected and oh, I see. he didn't get in trouble and that he had lied on his driver's license application. And oh, I see. He had come from another state and his family had left that state because he because of the restrictions on his driving. Now, I can't say that that's true because I I couldn't find um, documentation of it. But that's what the family told me happened. It, it was a horrible, sad thing for all involved. Now, in terms of that letter that you got from her, um, could you give me a couple of examples of, you know, loopholes in the logic of it where you thought, and eh, that yeah, doesn't let me, add. Let me take a peek at it here because I, I had an excerpt of it in the book. Um, she, one of the things she did was she tried to convince me in this letter that she was innocent by telling me everything she did minute by minute on the morning that Carrie was murdered. Now, she was not accused of harming Carrie until over two years had passed. If you ask me what I did last Tuesday morning, I probably wouldn't be able to tell you very much about the day at all. Yet she knew what she was doing at 625 and at 630 and she dropped the kids off at this time and then she went to McDonald's and then she went to a cleaning job. She listed for me by the minute where she was every minute that morning. That in itself is very suspicious. Who knows what they were doing on any particular, yeah. would you know two years ago what you were doing on uh, November 12th? I mean, if, they, if any people who do archive their lives, I mean, they might make a work schedule but nothing that detailed. No. They know when they went to McDonald's or something. And then also what she would do, what she did in that letter was she repeated many of her attorney's arguments, which had not influenced the judge, but her attorney was very good. Uh, his name was uh, James Martin Davis, and he passed away a little over a year ago. Really great guy. Um, but... He did his best to defend his clients. He always did. And one of the things that he brought up in court was the size difference between Carrie and Liz, because Carrie uh, was taller than Liz and she outweighed her. And Liz brought that up too. So when someone has a weapon, it doesn't really matter if your victim's a little bigger than you are, because that weapon changes everything. So that did not convince me at all. Oh, and she also said, let's see, one of the one of the um, pieces of evidence that helped convince her, uh, that helped convict her, was a mint tent found in Carrie's car with Liz's fingerprint on it. And Liz told me in the letter, well, there's a reason. Uh, why that was there. She said, uh, David Krupa must have left it in Gary's in, in Carrie's car. She said, well, Dave smoked and I hated to kiss him when he smoked. So he, he carried mints with him every place he went. As soon as I saw that letter, I immediately texted Dave Krupa. He said, I call BS on that. He said, no way. He said that um, she never said one word about his smoking and he's never been the type to carry mints around. So all of her arguments 
fell flat. And uh, what was determined to be the official cause of death? Was it blunt force trauma? Nope. Nobody knows, but um, the body's never been found. Oh, it was never um, found. Mm. It was never found. Uh, they they believe it was a stabbing because uh, Liz impersonated another woman that she was trying to frame for Carrie's murder. She impersonated her in an email and described things that detectives knew to be true. And in in that in those emails, Liz actually also said that she stabbed Carrie. And because the other things that Liz said were true, they could prove to be true. For instance, the fact that um, Carrie died in the car. They they did find the detectives did find that the car was the passenger seat was saturated with blood, and DNA proved that to be Carrie's blood. They didn't find that. It took that took about three years to discover the blood in the car because uh, Liz had actually cleaned the car very well before she returned it to the uh, parking lot of Dave Krupa's apartment house. So this is a really, really complicated story and it's probably oh. confusing to the listeners because we're hopping around, but um, hopefully they're intrigued. Well, considering how the lengths to which she went to try to cover her tracks, she must have buried her somewhere. Well, they don't think she's buried. They they think there's a good chance that she's in a landfill. Oh That's yeah, what, maybe. Yeah, that the letters that Liz wrote that were traced back to her actually that um, the investigators were able to determine came from her computer. Um, those letters said that while she was impersonating this other woman she was trying to frame, these letters said that she, Carrie was thrown away. Nobody knows for sure. Uh, they did find evidence that proved that Carrie was dead, though. It was pretty shocking. I don't know and if you got it, that part. Yeah, I read the whole book. I just... Uh, like I said, it's been it's been you've since had a December, few months, so. and you've been reading yeah. about other monsters. There's unfortunately way too many of them. Yeah, uh, and so Liz is still filing an appeal. That's that process is still. No, she, no, she's been her. No, she lost her appeals. She, but she's not. She's, she's not giving up on uh, trying to read. Well, that's what she said in the in the letter she sent me three years ago. Because the book came out in 2020. It's been almost three years now. It was made into a Lifetime movie produced by by Kelly Ripa, and it aired in October. Um, they changed the title to The Disappearance of Carrie Farber, and Alicia Witt, incredibly talented actress, played the killer. Hey, kids, I'd like to introduce you to a new podcast you're going to love. On behalf of myself, Morgan Rector, of one of the most horrific true crime podcasts, Human Monsters, I'd like to ask you this question. Do you like to travel? Do you like picturesque locations and getting away from it all? Fun fact, there is a morgue on every cruise ship. After all, 
People die everywhere. Why wouldn't they die on a cruise ship in the Bahamas? Well, this new podcast has all that and murder. Murder. It's called Slaycation, and it's a darkly humorous look at murders and mysterious deaths that took place on vacation. Hosted by true crime fanatic, her comedy writer husband, and his TV producing partner, Slaycation brings a unique perspective to chilling, thrilling, and what-the-fuck stories of vacations gone horribly wrong. From the twisted tale of Harold and Tony Henthorne, whose romantic anniversary in the Rocky Mountains ended with one of them falling off a cliff, to Angelica and Vincent, two recently engaged lovebirds whose Hudson Valley kayaking adventure ended underwater, each episode of Slaycation will have you asking, accident or murder? But it's not just the stories that'll intrigue you. It's the discussion between a longtime married couple and business partners who happen to be Emmy-nominated TV producers. Each episode of Slaycation also includes humor, takeaway, and travel tips that will keep your next vacation from being your last. If you're ready to pack your body bags, Slaycation is available on all major podcast platforms. Search for Slaycation on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Listen to the 48 Hours Podcast for shocking murder cases and compelling real-life dramas from one of television's most watched true crime shows. Go behind the scenes of each episode with award-winning CBS News correspondents and producers in Postmortem, a weekly deep dive. Listen to 48 Hours wherever you get your podcasts. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule. History so interesting, it's criminal. And she was very good. She really captured. Sometime in the early 80s, REO Speedwagon's airplane made an unannounced middle-of-the-night landing. This is my friend Kyle McLaughlin, the star of Twin Peaks. And he's telling me about how he discovered a real-life Twin Peaks in rural North Carolina, not far from where he filmed Blue Velvet. What was on the plane was copious amounts of drugs coming in from South America. Supposedly, Pablo Escobar went looking for other spots, quiet, out-of-the-way places to bring in his cocaine. My name is Joshua Davis, and I'm an investigative reporter. Kyle and I talk all the time about the strange things we come across, but nothing was quite as strange as what we found in Varnumtown, North Carolina. There's crooked cops, brother against brother. Everyone's got a story to tell, but does the truth even exist? Welcome to Varnumtown. Varnumtown is available wherever you listen to podcasts.
Liz's personality. After the movie aired, I got texts from three of Liz's boyfriends who I had interviewed for the book saying they were blown away because Alicia had so perfectly captured Liz's personality. He said she really did she did she meet her or see footage of she um she read my book and she described it Alicia described it as channeling her um she's just an incredibly talented actress she's um she was a child actress who was in Dune in yeah yeah do you remember that movie I have the DVD and and she's good in that too. She was, you remember that? Real... She's a little girl that's talking like the old spirit. But he is the Quisatz Hatterock. She was incredible. Mm-hmm. She was a little girl, what, six years old or something like that when she did that. And then um, a part was written for her in Twin Peaks. And so she was in that when she was a teenager. And she's done quite a few Hallmark Christmas movies. And this was a little bit of a switch from doing a Christmas movie. But she's incredible. She really got a good handle on the character. I think A Tangled Web was a better title than that. Maybe it was taken already. I think, I don't know. um, Maybe Lifetime wanted to make it clear to viewers that it was about what it was about, that it was a murder story. And maybe A Tangled Web didn't do that. I would have preferred they kept my title, but. So how how accurate was the movie? Did it get everything right? Or? Well, it, true crime movies based upon books are always fictionalized. Composite characters are created. There, for instance, most true crime movies you see uh, in real life there might be ten detectives, but the scriptwriters will boil it down to two. In, I mentioned earlier the uh, movie that was made based on my mom's book, The Stranger Beside Me. My mom had four kids in the movie. She had just one. It was me. So uh, <laughs> they they always change things. It's this story is so complex. There is no way for scriptwriters to tell it in a two-hour format. It would have to have been a mini series to cover everything. Yeah. I mean, even Goodfellas was fictionalized to a certain degree because Italian mafia families often have hundreds of associates and soldiers and, but you can't have a cat, you know, a hundred or 300 characters. So they would, you know, use composites and things like that and uh, change events around. So I guess that, yeah, I guess they always take liberties, don't they? They do. And that's just the way it's done. And um, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just the way it's always been done. So did you uh, did you go back to your, your mother's true crime books for inspiration or guidance on how to write the well, book? The thing was, is I started working with my mom at age 17 and assisted her for years. So it just came to me naturally. I helped my mom with research. I took photos for her books. I helped proofread it was something that was ingrained in me because I'd been around it forever and I was already a writer and I had written about murder in 
Uh, one of my ghost books, uh, When the Ghost Screams, True Stories of Victims Who Haunt, is about ghosts, earthbound people seen around the sites of where murder occurred, where violence occurred. And so I had written about murder in that book, in, in shorter stories. So it it just came, it came pretty naturally. I'd just been around it forever. God, why why would the ghost even want to hang around there? That's the big that's a big question why for me. Why does a ghost want to hang in the spot where, where they died? Where they were well, killed, yeah. yeah what's yeah, the point? Know, I, think you know? that, um, I think that on the other side, there's probably no time. And it seems to be emotion that is the main cause behind a haunting. So it's it's intense emotion. And it doesn't matter if a minute went by or a century went by because there is no time on the other side. So people will say, well, why is, why is that ghost haunting that horrible little house? Why is she stuck there after a hundred years? And we have to realize we're looking at it from our perspective. From the ghost perspective, it's just a flash. It could be just a flash. I think yes. time is a concept that we accept. Uh, we have to abide by the rules of time. And it's really hard for us to imagine what it would be like to be in a world with no time. I think that on the other side, time, time does not exist. And there's no moving forward or backward. I think that I've had cases of ghosts that have appeared in the past. For instance, somebody could die and then move backwards in time and appear two weeks before they died. I've had cases that indicate that's what's going on. Now, I always say, um, I don't know anything for sure when it comes to the uh, paranormal, the ghost world. I lean toward many of the leading theories and I have my own ideas about things and I've noted patterns in haunted places, but I do not have the answers. I'm not a ghost expert. I don't think anybody is. I don't think we can be until we're on the other side. But I love to talk about I love to talk about it and explore the possibilities. Well, I've seen a few in my bedroom because this used to be a nursing home. And so oh, there's house? been a lot. Of, yeah, there's been a lot of death here. It's an, it's now an apartment building for seniors because I'm a caregiver to my mother. And uh, they like to wake me up and just stare at me, which is pretty disconcerting. Oh, uh, are they the yeah. old folks that died there? You know, not they didn't all seem to be that old. Uh, well, one guy seemed like he was just in his 50s. And I woke up one day after, during a nap and he was like standing next to me, staring down, which and the thing is, ghosts don't always look like translucent. A right. lot of them look like carbon based beings. They look yeah. real, and that's what's scary yeah. most of the time. I didn't think he was a ghost at first. Scary um, to think that a live human being might have broken into your place. Yeah. I mean, even though we have a self-locking door, so no one can break in without making a lot of noise. But, yeah, first time it happened was like three or four days after we moved in. Woke up, saw this old lady walking away from my bed, and I'm like, how the hell did she get in here? Wow. Um, it was always did after coming face? up. Did she, she's just her walking away. I only saw her from the from behind. It was weird. Did, uh, the 50-year-old guy, did he appear once 
Or more than once. Just once. Just once. And, you know, a lot of them have this kind of impish disposition where they're smiling. Like, it's like it's a prank. Like, it's a joke to them. Like, you know, I'm going to scare the shit out of this guy. (laughs) It's always coming out of sleep, too. I mean, paranormal, paranormal experts do have theories regarding sleep and the connection to the spirit world the pineal gland um so i guess there is a connection um well yeah i've never just been walking through the apartment and seen a ghost though i know i know i've heard objects falling down so maybe that's a pretty strong sixth sense don't you like this you've always had this oh yeah yeah i'm i i'm a psychic and a medium a spiritualist i read tarot cards and Mm-hmm. So I've been doing that for a long time. My mother is a psychic as well. So. Oh really? Yeah. It I've done. Families. Yeah, I've kind of. I don't know if I would call it a seance, but spiritualists can pick up energies from spirits when they're conscious, and I've done that. And uh, but yeah, there's always seems to be some kind of unsolved, unresolved business with them. Uh, you know, a crime or. Right. Uh, Sometimes like a speakeasy was converted into a museum and people saw ghosts there and they were all like gambling, drinking. And uh, it's always unfinished business with them. Speaking of unfinished business, um, do you have any idea how Carrie's family is doing now? Have they healed or I guess that never ends, right? No, it doesn't get any easier, especially for her mom. Yeah. She's instilled in a lot of grief and pain. It, my heart just goes out to them because it's such a horrible thing, and it did not have to happen. It's such well, a yeah. waste. It happened in such a horrific way, and on top of that, to have the murderer taunt you for what was, yeah. it was years. It went on for years. Yes, it did. And um, Liz would pretend to be Carrie and would send emails saying, I want to come home, and get her her par- her family's hopes up thinking that well maybe she is alive maybe this is maybe this is our daughter maybe she does want to come home and only to have their hopes dashed it was yeah. cruel it was a very cruel way to play with a grieving mother oh yeah she's a sadist for sure it's hard to believe that anybody could be that cruel in the letters she wrote to you did you um, get the sense like this This is a person really trying to force their way into trying to sound innocent? Like it seemed kind of, um, how should I put it, uh, contrived in that sort of way? Yeah, she, she obviously was trying to convince me, and I believe she thought that she could. Um, it was, like I said, six and a half pages. It was very, very polite. And... She probably thought, she didn't realize the book was already on its way to press. She probably thought that I was going to write something from her perspective. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, there's that. And also, I think the reason why a lot of um, criminals like that don't do interviews is because they're afraid that the interviewer is going to take the Mike Wallace approach and just harangue them and shout at them and tell them how awful they are. Not that they wouldn't deserve it, but as I said, very few people, no matter how horrible they are, believe they're bad people and they don't want to hear it. So, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, true. like, 
I mean, actually, Ted Bundy was one of the only serial killers to actually say they were a bad person. He said, I'm one of the most cold hearted sons of bitches you'll ever meet or something like that. It's a very rare thing. Uh, him and you no, know, he at the end when he was doing those interviews, I think sometimes he told the truth and sometimes he lied. I think he was toying uh, with the interviewers, and we'll never know. We don't know exactly how many victims there were. We don't know which things were true that he said. We don't know which things were lies. He took a lot of secrets to the grave. Well, yeah, I mean, I think one of the reasons why he couldn't look you in the eye and why uh, Liz couldn't conduct these phony relationships to try to maintain the, the cover up is because these people, they don't understand human nature. They don't understand how to connect with people emotionally. The lack of empathy, the lack, they can't really connect that well. They're really good at pretending. And one of the things that sociopaths do is, and this is what. Um, I believe Liz did to her friend Cherokee, is they mirror back whoever the person is to make them think that there's an alliance, that, hey, I'm like you. uh, They will, whoever they're targeting to manipulate, they will get in the same position. Like if one person is sitting in a chair and their, their leg is crossed and they're going like this, the sociopath will do the same thing and it creates this unconscious alliance and subconscious alliance and they will pretend to have the same values uh Cherokee is bisexual and so Liz told her that she was also bisexual but no one else in Liz's life had ever heard that before so I think that was Liz trying to um, appeal to Cherokee, make her think, hey, I'm like you. And it wasn't um, a situation where she was trying to date her because Cherokee was married. Um, also, Cherokee is an excellent mother, and Cherokee got the impression that Liz was also because Liz was pretending to be like Cherokee. So we have to watch out for people who seem like. They're too much like we are. You meet somebody, oh, wow, we have so much in common. Don't just embrace that and accept it right away because people aren't always who they are pretending to be. Well, that's pretty smart, though, because, I mean, especially in this day and age, people really do try mostly seek out their own tribe, right? Yes. People are. Well, they do. It's like it's really you just bumping along in the world, and sometimes it feels uh, lonely and and that no, nobody can relate to you. And then you meet a friend and, wow, she feels exactly like I do. She thinks blah, blah, blah. And I think blah, blah, blah. And it makes you feel uh, like you belong uh, when that happens. And I think that this kind of um, sociopath will target lonely people. Yeah. They'll target people that really need friends. Yeah, I think my my attachment disorder hypothesis might be relevant because she, she doesn't know how to bond. So it's just like, right. well, what do, what, what do people like? What, what do they respond to? Well, they don't want yeah. you to be different from them. They want you to have all these interests in common and, and, right. and ultimately if you're incapable of feeling remorse, then you can lie to people all the time and not feel bad about it. Right. And not, and not 
and have no if you have no fear of people then you, you wouldn't worry about getting caught so she didn't have that yeah. you know um if if your listeners they want to look on hulu for the 2020 episode that i participated in it was in december of 2020 and the 2020 people were wonderful to me abc's 2020 and they named the episode after a tangled web which i thought was a great honor um, oh, nice. They have a, a video and audio of Liz, and she does a really good job of acting. Um, there's one audio tape where she's speaking to a, a fire investigator after she burns down her own house. Liz is speaking to this person, and she sounds genuinely distraught claiming that Carrie did this. And she says, why did she just leave me alone? And I can't remember the exact wording, but it just is amazing that she sounds very, very convincing. And that's the way these people are. Many of them are so good at getting away with these kinds of things because they are convincing. But um, you're, you're um, of course, I would prefer they read my book, but... Um, not everybody likes to read, and maybe they'll do both, watch um, the 2020 episode and read a, ta a Tangled Web. It's, I think they're going to find it really interesting when they, they actually will also see the interrogation videos of Liz when the detective sat down with her. Well, I guess it's easy to, to lie and adopt a phony persona when there's nothing inside of you. Like Maybe that's one of the reasons why you felt there was something off about Ted Bundy. I don't know how keen your intuition is, but he. I remember reading that he didn't understand other people. He didn't understand why they felt the way they did, why they thought the way they did. Maybe because maybe there was a void inside of him. Yeah, it could be. It could be. And, and I, you know, when I had that impression of him when I was 14, I'm not going to pretend that I had this wonderful, great insight or that I knew he was evil. I can't really put my finger on exactly what it was. It was it was just kind of a general feeling that something was off and noticing that he wouldn't look me in the eyes. So I'm not going to say I had great insight when I was 14, but. Um, yeah, yeah if, I, if I recall correctly, I don't know if he started killing at that point. He might not have. I don't know if he started killing by that point. Nobody I think really I... knows for sure yeah, when it started, yeah. but that's that was before a couple of years before uh, that we became aware that women were disappearing. Yeah, yeah, 19, 1974 was, yeah, yeah, 74 was, was the year we yeah. really, started, yeah, right. It was, yeah, it was two years afterward that we know of. People speculate that he was involved in other murders, but. No one knows for sure. And so do you, do you still have your, your mom's old archives from all the true crime writing and stuff? Um, no, I don't have that, but I have all of her books. Oh, yeah. Well, that's still a good archive to have. So she did she teach you a lot about um, just uh, criminal well, science in general? Or? I, I think that it's learned through osmosis. And when I think of all the trials that I went to her over the went with her over the years, we went to Seattle and 
and Eugene, Oregon, and and San Antonio, Texas, and Wilmington, Delaware, and all the trials I sat through and listened to testimony and the photos I took of the killers. You just can't help but learn when you're immersed in that. Yeah, and of, of course, course we yeah. would talk. That, you know, uh, my mom would be driving and we would be discussing things for many hours on the road. And it was never with the idea that I was trying to learn. It was just also fascinating. Yeah, of course. Do you plan on writing another true crime book in the future? I might. That could happen. Yeah. I don't have one uh, in a plan right now. Um, Writing true crime is much, it's much more stressful than writing about the paranormal. When I write the ghost books, they're uh, collections of stories. Like the stories are anywhere between three and six pages long. Uh, Each book has probably at least 50 to 100 stories. And they're little bite-sized stories that I don't have to immerse myself in somebody's life for a long period of time. With the true crime books, I feel this great sense of responsibility to the victims and the victim's family that I just want to handle the subject so carefully so they're not going to be hurt any more than they are. And there's a lot of pressure trying to get all that right. Yeah, well, I think one thing that's going to probably probably has already become a liability for the true crime literature, the people who are writing it, is that the offenders have been reading the literature and they've been learning from the mistakes of other offenders. So they're probably not getting caught as much as they used to. Well, except we have so much better uh, equipment to detect the DNA. Uh, the forensic oh, yeah. DNA has gone, has gotten um, incredible over the last few years. And then also now there are security cameras everywhere. So it's much harder for the, and we can track them. We can look at their cell phone, see where they were, look at their computer. Everybody leaves a digital trail now. It's very unusual if someone doesn't have a digital trail. So while in some ways, maybe it's uh, the the scales have tipped for the killers. For instance, they can also use um, electronics to commit their crimes. I think that, it's worse for the criminals. I think that the scales oh, have tipped sure. more in favor of the detectives. Yeah, and the uh, Behavioral Sciences Division of the FBI got really good at figuring out who the offender might be. At first, law enforcement used to be really skeptical about that, but John Douglas, I think his name was, he used to come in and say he's got to be this kind of guy, probably lives this way and comes from this kind of city or whatever, and quite often he was right on the money. So they. Yeah. Yeah. That's well, another. all the time it's improving and we're learning with every passing year. You know what we really need to do is we need to start with the baby, start with the children and make sure they're nurtured, make sure they're cared for. That's how we're going to prevent murder in the future. Oh, yeah. Well, the fountain of evil will always run eternal. That's what I think. I'm not even being pessimistic. Yeah. It's just always that way. It seems that way, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Leslie. I really appreciate it. It's been a very enriching talk, and I'm sure my uh, my listeners and viewers will enjoy it. They must have 
read your mom's book and I hope they read your book. Well, thank you. It was fun. It was nice to chat with you. Yeah, likewise. Have yourself a good night. You too. Take care.